Let's go ahead and read the text and I'll pray for us. John chapter 6, verses 22 to 29. Follow along as I read this with us. Be encouraged by the word of God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. In other words, after he had performed the miracle. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And here's the verse from here to the conclusion of the passage today that we're going to be spending our time on primarily. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Son of Man, Jesus, the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he, God, has sent. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, would you be seen this morning as wonderful, as important, the most important to our souls, to our lives, to our minds? Would you free us from limiting you and how you are to be applied to our lives? May we allow you to move into our lives, not just the things that we have ignorantly labeled sacred, but would you come in and holistically teach us and serve every part of our mind, our soul, and our heart, and would we leave today satisfied in you? Would we leave content in you alone? Would the reasons why we pursue you be revealed to the very core of our being? And if we realize that we're pursuing you for good reasons, but not the wonderful reason of you being our Savior, would you reveal that to us, lead us into repentance, confession of this, and bring us back to the cross where we can see you as wonderful? Just you being you, not what you do. Lord, help us. We are so prone to be here with this crowd in this text. Be with us. Help us. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, I'm going to set the table before we eat, okay? So here's kind of what's going on. Here's the setting, all right? This crowd has been pursuing Christ for quite some time. They want him to be their king. Because he is incredibly useful. But Jesus is more than useful. But they see him as useful. They see him as someone who could really help their political agenda. They could, he could establish 
the true Israel, the new Israel, the city that they have been heard of, that's been prophesied, he can help it happen physically, politically. But Christ's main purpose wasn't a political purpose. It was a redemptive purpose. It was a spiritual purpose, not a physical purpose. He was here. He came to feed starving souls. Souls that would die. He came to give those souls life. He came to feed souls, not simply bellies, for 70 years. He came to fill lives. So they follow him. He, unbelievably to me, he has compassion on this crowd. He has gentleness. He has patience with them. And he serves them all day long. Giving himself out even when he was tired. Supper time comes around. We can't send them away. Hungry. What a concerned Savior. I love his concern here for the crowd. When I would be not too concerned. He offers grace. He performs a miracle and feeds thousands of people. Somewhere between fifteen and 25,000. It's a lot, okay? Regardless of what number it is, a lot of people with a few fish and a few pieces of bread. He multiplies it, performs this incredible miracle for the people to have their fill, for people to be satisfied with, of their hunger craving physically. But it was to point to something greater that they failed to see as we will learn. Okay. They were following Jesus only for what he could do for them. Just before, I think around 20 or 21, he dismisses the crowd, telling them to leave. He looks at his 12 disciples, dismisses them, tells them to leave for Capernaum. And he, Mark 6, says, goes up in the mountains to pray. As his disciples leave without him, they come across a storm. And even though they were expert fishermen, some of them, the storm was unbelievably powerful and they have done all things to stay out of these things. But Jesus said, go. And they encounter the storm and they are rowing. I believe uh, Matthew points out they've rowed for 12, rowed for 12 hours. They've, they've had to pull their sail down because the wind and they've had to go to, they had to resort to rowing against this current, against this wind, beating themselves to such tired strength. And then here comes Jesus. He sees them, Mark says, and goes to them. He walks on water. Last week was such an encouraging thing to me where Jesus doesn't address the storm according to John. He just, in the middle of the storm, standing before them on water, on what they were fearing, the wind and the waves, and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. But the storm, it is I. He didn't say, I'm, I'm going to dismiss this storm. He didn't say, you're not going to die. He didn't say, try harder. He said, basically, I'm here. It's going to be all right. I love that. Because we're all in storms. We're either leaving a storm or entering a storm or we're right in the middle of one right now. Every person in here fits that. And the hope is that Jesus' presence will change everything. His presence will. Alone. The storm is powerless when placed in perspective of Christ and his ability. Okay, so that's where we are. Okay, and then it says there at the last of verse 21, and they were immediately at their destination. So they get to Capernaum. 
Now we have verse 22. Okay? Follow along with me. On the next day, which was most likely just a few hours later, because they had rode all night long, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, so it was still a good group of people there, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered. So they were kind of watching. They were spying. He sent them away, but they're like, yeah, we're not going away too far. And they stood there and they watched. Okay, hey, the disciples are getting in the boat. Jesus isn't with them. Where's Jesus? Oh, they're leaving. Okay, so the disciples are gone. Where's Jesus? Okay. And so they watch and they observe. Okay, Jesus isn't with them. But they know the disciples had gone away. The crowd doesn't obey. They did not leave. I think that's interesting. The disciples obeyed and they left. Verse 23. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, after he had performed the miracle. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. I wish that that were completely true, that they were just, they were seeking Jesus, not Jesus and his whatever. If they were just seeking Jesus, this would be a different story. So basically this boat service, it worked as something like a taxi service. These boats came in, they're like, hey, let's take this. Can you take us to to Capernaum? It worked out something like that. They get in these boats and they go over pursuing Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus, I just wonder if it's like, he looks at them the next day and like, are you kidding me? Like, you guys won't give up, you know? Um, Let's see how he handles them. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus could have said, I walked. They would have said, we didn't see you walk. We were on the shore. We were kind of around. We were watching everything. No, I walked on water. Oh, wow, you are special. It's interesting that he doesn't reveal this to them. He reveals this to the disciples as he walks on the water before their eyes. Nothing is said about it after this. But the disciples saw, and Matthew says they worshipped him. But to the crowd, he doesn't reveal this. This is interesting to me. I find it interesting that Christ tends to reveal more to his men, his, his disciples, than the crowd that's seeking those signs. He's not continue to show and prove and prove and prove, but to his disciples, he is. So Jesus answers them, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, and this is significant. When he, when he starts any statement like this, it's like he's, want, he's trying to get their ears. We know that everything Christ says is important. We know that everything in Scripture is important because it's all from the Holy Spirit, right? The one author. But to the crowd in the context, when Christ says truly, truly, he, that would catch their ear. That's when most, if you, if you were your rabbi, you would grab a pen. You would want to know this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but they did see the signs, right? And that's why they're pursuing him. But what Christ is getting at here is they simply saw the miracle, and not the man of the miracle, okay? Not what it was pointing towards. They simply saw the superficial miracle. They didn't follow that to where it was pointing towards. 
They missed it. So he's saying, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And this word here in the Greek for ate your fill is one word. And it's pertaining to the ringing of the bell when it's time for the livestock to come eat. I was simply the guy ringing the bell. You came in as a herd. You ate and you left. That's all you want me for. That's why you're seeking me. You're wanting me to, in context here, you, this is what he's literally saying. You want me to continue to feed you physically. Your belly is important. And you want me to feed your belly. I am your food genie. When you're hungry, you want me around. That's all I am to you. This is why you are seeking me. And it's interesting that this is breakfast time. And you wonder if, okay, he fed us supper last night. Let's go find him today for breakfast. What about for lunch? Maybe for something. If we can keep him around, this will help us as a country. What an economic boost Christ will be to us. What a savior. They were so content with the physical. The people were only noticing the miracle, not what it was pointing towards. This crowd were made up of primarily natural people, not spiritual people, not redeemed people. They were satisfied with their physical needs being met. They were concerned with the product of the miracle, the result of the miracle, not the person of the miracle. Miracles are given so that we will worship Jesus. Not be like, oh, did you see all that food? Let's eat more. Maybe he can give us more food. They're standing in front of Jesus. They're standing in front of Jesus Christ. With these cravings and these longings and this discontentment all through their lives. Not just their stomachs. They're seeking him to satisfy them with physical things that will never truly satisfy, if anything, only temporarily. They were satisfied momentarily with supper, and now they want something else. This is very sad. This is very sad because they're seeking Jesus, the only one that can completely satisfy, eternally satisfy their longings and cravings completely. And they're asking him for physical remedies that will not satisfy, that will not work. And he is fully capable of satisfying them. But they don't see that it is in fact satisfying. It's, you know, the plastic food, remember the little kitchens that you had growing up, the fake kitchens with a sink this big, and you had like little corn on the cobs and the plate and the burgers that you could stack up. But if you made burgers like me, they would always fall over, right? Cause you'd have to have all the condiments on it. You know what I'm talking about? The plastic stuff or the pizzas that you could make plastic, right? If you're starving and you come over to my house and my kids say here, you know, daddy's on the grill, he's fixing the steaks, but here, eat this in the meantime, and you're hungry, you're like, <laughs> that's nowhere close. That's not even possible. Like, that's not even funny. This is how blind and deceived they were. They were looking at Jesus, saying, if you're hungry, I can satisfy. And they look at him like, 
No, that's just the, like, who wants plastic? Like, you're not capable of producing real food. Like, you can't truly satisfy me. You're limited. It's just looking at you as you're totally incapable. Like, that's just the plastic pizza. Give us more. He's like, no, you, it's not, I'm capable of satisfying something much deeper, more completely. Essentially, what they were trying to do was take, and this is an old analogy, but the, the concept that we all have a, a God-shaped space, a God-shaped hole. And let's say it's a round space, and they're trying to fill it with every odd-shaped element to satisfy that craving. But that was they were created in the image of God where they have this space for God that when He is there, changes everything. Or at least changes something about everything. And they continued to throw these other objects in. Let me see that ball real quick, Jacob. It's essentially like this. My favorite toys growing up, right? And the creator of this toy, I think it's Tupperware, makes these. They created these to where only certain shapes would be able to fit in certain holes. If you have a round shape, plastic shape, it will not fit. It's designed to where it will not fit. I've tried, okay? With a hammer, all right? It will not work because they've intended it. They've created it this way. Silly example, limited example, pointing to a profound truth that the people in this day, as we today, we try to take what is not intended to fit and make it fit. And we think that more of it will make it fit. As we'll see. And this is not okay. This will not satisfy. This is foolishness. Let's look at verse 27. Again, this, this and the next verse is where we're going to be spending most of our time. Do not work. Do not labor. Okay, this is the main verb in our passage today. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. The second verb is absent, so I'll put it in as we read it this way, because the same work modifies both. Okay, Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. And this food is of such that it's the Son of Man, He will give it to you. For on Him, on the Son of Man, on Jesus, God the Father has set His seal. Set His seal. Okay? What's that mean? His seal. It's God has endorsed, has authorized Jesus to be the mediator for those who will live. Jesus has been given the authority to give life to those whom He wants to. Let's look back at John 5, 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is what it means that he has the seal. So he has the right, the authority to do so. But let's look at the first part of chapter, I mean, of verse 27 there in chapter 6. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures, even endures to eternal life. Christ describes two types of food here. One that lasts, one that does not perish, 
that is imperishable and one that satisfies. But then he also talks of food that doesn't last, that doesn't satisfy, that is perishable. Here's what he's getting at. The perishable is this. Not limited to, but certainly these things. It is success. Material possessions. Status. Physical attractiveness. Bank account. Job. Career. Retirement. Power. Authority. Control. Popularity. Relationships. Boyfriend. Girlfriend. Husband. Wife. Friends. Family. Approval. Sex. Degrees on the wall that we've earned. Good grades. Living for the weekend. These things pass. These things are physical. More of these things will not satisfy. They are fleeting. They're passing away. These things will all perish. I was listening to a sermon this week. The preacher was just like, you know, the fact is everything that we own and we value and we prize right now physically is going to be sold at a garage sale or end up in a garbage heap. And yet we work so hard for that stuff. This isn't a sermon about making you feel guilty for having things. This is the perishable things. What is imperishable in this context that Christ is teaching us? What will last? What will satisfy? Jesus. That's it. All these other things that I just listed, and even the list could go on for miles and miles and miles on a sheet of paper, will not satisfy. More and more and more and more and more will not satisfy. If anything, you could almost argue the fact that the more of those things and the more of those things and the search for more of those things will lead to further depression. Because you think more is the answer, and then once you get it, it doesn't satisfy. So you think more is the answer, and when you did it, it doesn't satisfy. And you just continue, continue, and you're like, man, there is no hope. There is, there is no true satisfaction in life. But when Jesus is what you have, you have peace. You have satisfaction because he is the source of your identity. He looks at you and tells you, I love you. You have been adopted. You are approved. You are cherished. You have heaven as your promised home. God's perfect plan is over you. He is in control. He is always good. He can always be trusted. His plan is always for His glory. Nothing can separate you from His love. He will complete the work that He has begun in you. He will energize you with His Holy Spirit to do what it is that He's called you to do. Pure satisfaction. This is spiritual. This satisfies. This has eternal implications and eternal rewards. So, how do we get this? How do we get this satisfaction? This is their question that they have in verse 28. Okay, if we're not to pursue the things that don't satisfy, that perish, and we're supposed to pursue the things that are imperishable, that last, that satisfies, how do we get it? What do we do? And Jesus says, This is the work of God. 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's too easy. If, if you look at that and you feel like, no, that's, that's too good to be true, then you're really close to understanding this gospel. When you truly understand the gospel, you look at it and say, that is too good to be true. Nothing can be that simple. Nothing can be that easy for me. He says, believe, trust, have faith in me. That is eternal life. That is imperishable. Regardless of what you have or don't have in this life, you can have satisfaction in knowing that it's all going to be okay because of me. This is perfect satisfaction. They are standing in front of the bread of life, the true bread giver, asking how to have bread. What must we do to get this bread? They do not see him as capable. Jesus says, if you don't see the person, he essentially says this, if you don't see the person standing in front of you as the source of all life and treasure and satisfaction and fulfillment, then no amount of work will ever help you. None. And the more tricks I do will just mislead you more and more because you're missing the point. What do we have to do? Jesus says, what? Done. Done. Just believe. Don't do Just believe, eat, live, enjoy me, enjoy life, enjoy satisfaction. Such an enemy to the gospel is this southern moralistic legalism. Okay, it's what we hear as religion and we hate. Not all religion is bad. We must be religious about brushing our teeth. We must be religious about eating. We must be religious about studying scripture. Not all religious things are bad, so let's not throw it out. But the word religion, we hear religion. We don't need more religion. We need a relationship. That type of thing, yeah, I get it. And it's pointing to this southern moralistic legalism that's an enemy to the gospel. It's an enemy to what is truly satisfaction. You get a sense that these guys are just asking, what more must I do to get what you have? And I'm ready to work. I'm ready to earn. I'm ready to achieve. Tell me what to do. Point me in the right direction. They're not getting it. But this southern moralistic legalism says do and go at it hard. But Jesus in the gospel says done. There's nothing you could do to earn this. That's why I'm doing it for you. You don't even know how to discern physical from spiritual. Without me working in you to reveal this to you. I'm here to tell you, work for the imperishable. Believe me. If you want to call it work, this belief, believe. That's it. That's all I'm asking. 
and I will hurl myself on you. I will love you. I will keep my eye on you as the disciples in the storm. I will meet you where you are. I will be there when you think you can't take it anymore and say, it is I. Do not be afraid. I will always be life's game changer. When you don't think there's any hope, I will be there for you. There is nothing that you can do to separate me from you. You can't screw it up. You can't. I will not let that happen. That sounds too good to be true. This is how much we are loved. The gospel says, I don't want your work. You can't work for this. I want your heart. How can this be true? Jesus came to us because we could not come to him. He came to do what we could not do. Our best is still not even on the scale of worst. It's nothing. 1 John 15, or John 15 talks about Jesus being the vine and how apart from him we can do nothing. All we can do, but in perspective, zilch, nothing. Jesus came to do what we could not do for ourselves. He did this in what we celebrate for Christmas where he came to earth to be our hero, our redeemer. And he fought through life. He suffered shame and intense tribulation and strife and persecution. He experienced every single temptation that we are tempted with in our lives. Well, nobody knows what I'm going through. Jesus does everything that you're going through. He endured this life But not like we endure. We endure and we fight through sin by sinning and trying our best to repent and turn to him. But we still sin. Jesus hit life and never once did anything outside of a pure motive. He never had a poor thought. And considered, I better not say this, this is going to hurt their feelings and this is rude. Never. He never once looked at a woman and had a sexual fault. Never one time. Amazing. He never once saw something and said, I wish I had that. Never. Never. Much less acting out on these sins. You know how hard that is? He was perfect. He did not sin one time time. The gospel says that that perfect life is now ours because we are not perfect. So Christ lived his perfect life as our representative, as us. And then his death on the cross, as he died as our substitute, in place of us so that we do not have to experience eternal death. He died as our substitute. The shedding of His blood atoned for our sins. More than this, 
he became what the Bible considers our propitiation. Which means that because of our sin, God's wrath goes out towards our sin because he's holy. And if God does not react in wrath towards sin, he ceases to be God. So he's just in having wrath and it's sent out on the cross. But Jesus takes it. It did not get deferred somewhere else, detoured, delayed, anywhere else. It was sent directly to Christ. And he had the entire cup of God's wrath poured out on him to where the wrath had expired. There was none left. So that now for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There's no more wrath. Jesus absorbed it all. And experienced separation from God so that we don't have to. So he lives a perfect life for us. He dies death for us. And he beats death so that we too have hope of a victory over sin, death, and the grave. Because Christ did. On the cross, and as we see the cross and it leads us to repentance, we experience what theologians consider the great exchange. All our bad for all of God's Son's perfection. All of Christ's perfection. Such a wonderful, too-good-to-be-true moment when we're given everything we don't deserve and everything from us that we deserve is given to someone else who doesn't deserve it. It's the most incredible storyline ever written. And I believe it's what every storyline points to, that we create and write. This is the gospel. This is how Jesus can look at us today and say, get me, believe me, And I'll take care of it all. What I give has eternal implications and eternal rewards and hope and peace. Just believe me. So here we are at the conclusion of today's sermon. Would you just believe Jesus? That's all he wanted these people to do. There's a lot of reasons why we're here today. There's a lot of reasons why we like church, why we're in the Christian worldview, why we like Christianity. There's a lot of reasons. My prayer is that you are pursuing Christ and even here today because you believe Jesus. And it's that simple. Would you please look to Jesus for Jesus? Just Jesus. And understand that life is more than just a pursuit of status. That life is more than just a pursuit of success and climbing the ladder and capturing a good retirement before the age 45. If I could just get this, if I could just get married, life is more than this. Again, if I'm on my deathbed and you're standing beside me as your pastor feeling this text this week and looking at you, if I could say to myself and to you in this moment, don't get overwhelmed and bogged down in the junk that this world throws at you. This is where I might sound like an old school preacher, okay? But it's true. There's so much in life that clutters Christ. There's so much in life that distracts us from the main thing. And we get deceived. And we don't see it. Would you be 
daring enough this morning? Would you be crazy enough maybe this morning to say, Jesus, if I am deceived, would you, would you reveal it to me? If I am, would you reveal it to me? Because I do not want to waste what you've given me. You see, when we live for Jesus and Jesus alone, all the other stuff that I read, girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, wives, children, relationships, money, sex, power, control, all these things can then be used for His glory. But if you go there first, you can't just add Jesus on as one of these other things. Believe Jesus and watch Him be glorified through your list of perishables that He can redeem and use for His glory so that there are eternal rewards for you using these things for His glory. Trust Jesus. Believe Jesus. If you never hear me again, focus on Jesus. And don't waste your life on anything else.